Hey everybody, I'm Tim Muma, and thanks for checking into localjobnetwork.com radio. You're locked into I Want to Be A, where we complete that sentence each episode with a different profession, bringing you an experienced individual to give you some inside knowledge and advice on what it takes to succeed in that particular field. Today on LGN Radio, I want to be an astronaut. That's right, you heard me. We're going to figure out the skills, personality, and experience it's going to take to get you into space. Now, to fill us in on what it's like to be an astronaut and what you need to get there, we have Rick Houck joining us from Maine. Rick is a former NASA astronaut who earned a number of special honors throughout his career, took a couple trips into space, and held a handful of leadership positions as well in space programs. Rick, definitely our pleasure to have you on today. Tim, great to be here. First and foremost, obviously, giving you that little introduction there, but it'd be great if you could fill our listeners in a little bit on your uh, your career as an astronaut. Sure. I was a Navy test pilot and applied for the program in 1978 and was one of the first group of shuttle astronauts selected specifically to fly the shuttle. So uh, I was there for 11 years. I co-piloted one flight. I commanded two others. And uh, left in 1989. Well, you know, and I was talking to people about having you on. Obviously, it's just—it's hard to sort of wrap your head around the fact that you actually were in those positions, that you were in space. I guess what was it though that started for you that attracted you the, to the profession? Was that something you always had in mind? Was there something that sparked it? What was sort of your path as far as uh, getting into the industry? Well, I was always adventurous. My uncle was a Navy pilot. He was my hero, sort of. I was always interested in becoming a pilot, and in April of 1961, when I was a uh, a junior in college, Alan Shepard went up on the U.S.'s first manned space flight, and I was hooked. (laughs) That's all it took right there, huh? (laughs) That's what it was. Well, that's cool that you had that. I mean, obviously you had the the idea of of flight with... uh, sort of in the back of your mind already, but to go into space, a little bit different. When you look at back, maybe at your career now, or just how you look at an astronaut currently, how do you define it? How do you describe what it means, what the what the role is of an astronaut? Well, I, I, succinctly, I'd say it's uh, a role for a man or woman who conducts experiments and makes observations of phenomena unique to the weightless environment of space. That's in a nutshell. We're adventurers and people who try to blaze a trail for the future. So when you've gone out there, I mean, are you are there certain discoveries or different research that you're really looking for? Is there anything that stood out for you that, that you came across when you were uh, in your career? Well, in my particular case, I flew on the seventh flight of the space shuttle, and that was the first flight where we actually pulled a satellite out of the cargo bay and flew around it in close proximity to it and basically to verify that we could do that without blasting the the satellite by the the shuttle's jets. Sure. So that was a part of the test program. My second flight was I commanded a flight where we brought back to Earth two derelict uh, satellites that were worth about $100 million, <laughs> and uh, it was had never been done before. And so that was another proof of, what the shuttle could do. Sure. Is there a way to describe what it's like to be in space, what it's like to launch? Is there any way you can really put into words for someone who hasn't been at all experienced that type of thing? Well, it's a combination of expectation. Thank goodness we're finally going to do this. Mm -hmm. I can't believe I'm doing it. Sure. Am I scared? Yeah, I'm scared. (laughs) Uh, Our boss used to say anyone who says they're not scared when they're launching on 
five million pounds of of explosives is either in denial or lying. <laughs> it's just an extraordinary experience. I, I liken it to becoming a child again. The first time you ride a bicycle, the first time you drive a car by yourself, or for us pilots, the first time you solo. It's such a, a immense change in how you perceive the world. That it's full of wonder and full of expectation and lots of fun. Well, you're the only one that can compare, uh, you know, taking off in a space shuttle to riding a bike. So I'll, 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 I'll leave that to you. I, 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 there's no way I can compare those in my mind. But now we did mention, you know, you mentioned the idea that you were with the Navy and uh, that's sort of how you got started in terms of flight. Can you walk us through your path then to actually becoming an astronaut and sort of how that worked and what the processes were like for you? Sure. Um, 1977, actually, NASA put out a bulletin to all the military services as well as out to universities and colleges around the country saying, we want to hire new astronauts to fly the space shuttle. The fellows that flew the Apollo missions to the moon are getting older. So I filled out some paperwork. I was a pilot on the USS Enterprise Naval Aircraft Carrier at the time. And that paperwork went into NASA. They and uh, reviewed mine and probably two or three thousand other pilots' applications, boiled down uh, to a hundred those that they wanted to interview face to face. We went down twenty at a time and had a week of of briefings where they got to know us and we got to know what an astronaut really mm-hmm. did, and that included physical exams, psychiatric exams. Uh, things, uh, test to see if you're claustrophobic, for example. And uh, it was just a fascinating week. And then they made their final selections from that. Out of several thousand pilots, I was fortunate to be one of 15 who was selected. Wow. Can you fill us in a little bit on any of the what the tests were like, whether it be the physical side or the psychiatric or uh, even you mentioned the claustrophobic piece? Yeah. Um, a typical flight physical examination is how I'd describe the exam that we got. Not too much different from what an airline pilot would mm-hmm. have. Uh, we had two psychiatric examinations, uh, one with what we called Mr. Good Guy, who was nurturing us and touchy-feely <laughs> sort of a psychiatric exam. And then the other one was someone who tried to intimidate us and see how we reacted under stressful situations. For example, tell me who the presidents were, starting with the current president all the way back as far as you can. And at some point, any human would probably say, well, I can't get them all. And really the point was to see if you were flustered under a stressful environment where you weren't perfect. Okay. And we were briefed on the space shuttle systems briefed on what a typical day might be like on the space shuttle or even when you're not flying the space shuttle. What what, what do you do during the 99% of the time that you're an astronaut that you're not in space? Right. <laughs> of course, uh, back in the early days in particular, the length of the missions was only about six, seven, eight days. Mm-hmm. Well, since you brought it up, the idea of what goes into sort of the the day of an astronaut, and and you broke it down there briefly that most of it obviously is not going to be on a shuttle or in space, but could you tell us a little bit about what it would be like uh, both here on Earth and then also when you are uh, in space, what what a day would be like typically? Sure. Um, Once you're assigned to a flight crew, 
your days will be broken up into mission simulator training. For those of us who are pilots, we would have practices for launch and practices for reentry, where we'd actually fly the simulator. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd have even more sophisticated simulations where we would be hooked up to mission control and a simulation supervisor would throw in failures to the space shuttle systems and they'd see how the crew reacted to them and also see how the crew with the help of mission control on the ground would react to them. It's quite a bit of that training. Those of us who are pilots also would fly a highly modified business jet, a Grumman Gulfstream II, flying a space shuttle landing profile where we'd go up to 30,000 feet, put the engines into thrust reverse, so we would get the high drag profile of the space shuttle and then fly the shuttle down to a simulated touchdown at 200 miles an hour on the Edwards Air Force Base Lake Bed or at the Kennedy Space Center. We'd also have courses in viewing the Earth from space, whether it be geography, geology, atmospherics, uh, volcanology, (laughs) meteorology, not trying to make us experts, but trying to get us at least familiar enough with the subject so that if we saw something from space that looked odd, we could take a picture Mm -hmm. of it and an expert could then sort out what we had seen. Well, I would think you're going to space. You want to have pretty much all the possible knowledge you could get because of, I mean, just the, obviously the expanse that you're out there and, and what's going on. I, I can't even imagine, uh, you know, getting all that input right away. I mean, was that something that was overwhelming? Was it over a longer period of time? How did that all work in terms of really being able to take that in and be able to use it, as you said, if necessary? Yeah, good point. Um, the first year uh, being an astronaut candidate before you're formally named an astronaut is is mostly learning the shuttle okay. systems and so forth. Then you're assigned to a crew, and that would uh, you'd be a crew member in training for a year at least prior to the flight. So you had plenty sure. of time to absorb all that knowledge, and then uh, then it was time to go down to the Cape and launch and execute the mission. So, so what is that like, the day of the launch? I mean, is there is there a calmness to it? Is there a lot going on? Is it is it chaotic? I Just sort of describe the scene for, obviously, those of us that can't be there or have never been in that situation. Sure. Well, we'd go down to the Cape. We live in Houston, but go down to Cape Canaveral for launch about a week in advance. Uh, we would stay in what we called crew quarters there. We'd get daily briefings on the status of the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. There are always a few minor things that we would likely fly with, others that weren't minor that would have to be fixed before we'd fly. Uh, We'd have the opportunity to get in the NASA jets and fly up and down and turn around in them and uh, get a lot of your yayas out, I guess. (laughs) And um, then because your day is and the launch time is dictated by the orbit of whatever you're going to rendezvous with, you might have adjusted your sleep cycle. So you wake up at three in the morning, get dressed, have breakfast, get the latest briefings, put on your space suits, your pressure suits, uh, go down, catch the Winnebago out to the launch pad, (laughs) 
and uh, made me get in the, seated into the shuttle about two and a half hours before liftoff. Wow. And endure a fairly uncomfortable two and a half hours as you're sitting on your back, lying on your back. Then uh, during all this time, there are a lot of checks being conducted with ground control there at the Cape. And uh, finally, it comes down to uh, two minutes prior to liftoff, and I'd say heart rate is definitely up. (laughs) And uh, I know I felt in each case, because you've trained for this for such a long time, I was ecstatic about launching, but then, of course, you feel the rumble of the liquid-fueled engines start, and the vehicle starts to shake a bit. And if all the pressures and temperatures are good on those liquid-fueled engines at T0, the solid rocket boosters are ignited, and there is no stopping you at that point. You're on your way. (laughs) And about 40 seconds after liftoff, you're supersonic. You've cleared the atmosphere of the Earth. The sky is deep black, and uh, you just start accelerating faster and faster until eight and a half minutes later. You're going 17,500 miles an hour, and you're orbiting the Earth. Wow. And that's a wonderful feeling. I can't even imagine that. Now, when you're when you're launching, when you're you know busting through the atmosphere and, and getting up into space, I mean, can you see everything? Is there that much visual uh, availability for you when you're on the shuttle? Actually, it's interesting. You lift off of the shuttle, you're sort of in an upside down position going out okay. over the Atlantic, and you can see the Earth's curvature, and you can certainly see the Earth's thin membrane of atmosphere, and start to see. Uh, Europe <laughs> coming up rapidly, and then Africa. That's crazy. <laughs> so uh, every 90 minutes, you orbit oh, wow. the Earth. You have 16 sunrises and sunsets a day. Wow, that's incredible. So when you're in, when you're in space then, and obviously I know missions are going to be different, but what's sort of going on? I mean, are you working nonstop? Do you have downtime? What what exactly are, like what were some of the goals that you were, or some of the activities that you were participating in when you were in space? Sure. On all three of my missions, uh, we had at least one objective of sending a communication satellite into into orbit. We were sort of the first stage of its launch and open the cargo bay doors and flip a lot of switches and pop the satellite out, which would automatically then fire another one of its engines and go up into a much higher orbit where it could serve as a radio relay for or communications relay for might be a television uh, like Dish Network or <laughs> or it might be DirecTV, it might be AT&T communications satellite, it might be a government satellite. Sure. So that was one objective. Then you want to use this very expensive time as efficiently as you can. Mm-hmm. So you've got a number of experiments that might involve activation of some chemical solutions or try to do something with a communications, new communications system. And so the days were busy, but there was downtime. We would always have lunch, dinner, breakfast together, uh, catch up with each other, even though you're in that very small confined space while you're so focused on your own experiment, you might not chat with one of your crewmates for a couple of hours. So. Right. Meals are a good time to catch up, and then there's always 
eight hours budgeted for sleep. And if I, if you can show me anyone that could sleep for eight <laughs> hours the first night they're in space, I'll uh, I'll be amazed. But uh, yeah, yeah. How does that work? If you just kind of wake up in what would be, you know, in your mind, the middle of the night, and you're uh, you're in a space shuttle, you're in the middle of space. How does that work? Well, first of all, <laughs> it was difficult for me to go to sleep because <laughs> yeah. I was having so much fun and I was so excited and thinking. My goodness! Look, what am I doing? I'm <laughs> orbiting the Earth. This is this is unbelievable. And I left Earth this morning, and all my friends are down there <laughs> cheering me on. But I've got to go to sleep, so we put shades over the windows. I put eye shades over my eyes. I loosely put my seatbelt around me in the commander's seat of the space shuttle, and I try to go to sleep. And then I think. Oh, wow, what a great time this is. My <laughs> adrenaline level goes up, and I know I'm not going to go to sleep for another hour. So I float up to the window, and we're 200 miles above Earth, and I look down and see the Himalayas, or I see the Seychelles Islands, or I see the Grand Canyon, and that was very soothing. And I'd float back to my seat and start it all over again, and the net result, I'd probably get about three hours of sleep a night. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't imagine that at all. I, I, I just love hearing, I, I obviously hear you, I mean, remember this vividly, and how could you ever forget, but I just love hearing the, the passion you have for that. Obviously, you have to come back at some point. Uh, I guess, wh- what is that like? Is that more nerve-wracking than taking off? Uh, what is it like when you when you actually get back down and, and everything's safe and sound? Yeah, Tim, we've talked about launch, and there's a certain amount of fear then. Actually, once we're up in space in orbit, I found that was very comforting and hmm. I didn't feel threatened at all. Then when it's time to come back, you've got to fire your retro engines and spiral back down through the Earth's atmosphere where you're colliding with that atmosphere such that you're lighting up the nose of the shuttle like a neon bulb. A couple thousand degrees Fahrenheit temperature just 10 feet in front of you. So that is a uh, a hazardous time also, as we learned, unfortunately, when the Columbia came apart back in 2003. Uh, actually, on my three flights, we hadn't had an entry problem, so I, I was pretty comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I had flown after the Columbia loss, uh, I think I would have felt a little bit more threatened. With that, we are going to have to take a little bit of a break here on I Want to Be an Astronaut. Of course, we're talking with our expert guest, Rick Houck, who is himself a former NASA astronaut who actually logged over 400 hours in space during his career. If you're interested in continuing to listen to this conversation, head over to localjobnetwork.com radio list. Up in the upper left-hand corner, you can go ahead and type in I Want to Be an Astronaut, and part two should pop up for you right there. Meanwhile, if you want to get in touch with us, go ahead and send an email to ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com if you have any comments or suggestions for any of our podcasts here on LJN Radio. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Muma. Take care, everybody. Take care.